Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Chillinoy Podcast. I'm your host, Cole Preston. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Buck Hales from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. There's a link in the podcast description. If you click on it, you can see the timestamps for this episode. You can watch the video version of this episode, and you can check out any references that we made during this show. You can support us by making a contribution of your choice at chillinoynet slash support. Please rate the Chillinoy podcast positively on whichever platform that you are listening from and enjoy the episode. So, hey. It's Friday. It's 10 a.m. I'm sitting here at SIU Carbondale. Mr. Buck Hales, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. I'm excited. July is my favorite month of the year, so yeah. it's when my birthday is. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Well, uh, happy early birthday. Thank you. it's later this Be- month, right? Bastille Day, so. Bastille Day. J- J- July 14th. Okay, cool. Right. Cool. Well, happy early birthday. Thank you. Um, you got any plans? Got any exciting plans this, this year? Um. I uh, looking forward to spending some more time in Colorado. We have a, our travel trailers parked there, so nice. Nothing like Colorado in the summer. Yeah, don't get me started. We'll start talking about Colorado, yeah. and then it's it's, it's the, the humidity is the differential, you know. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. You saw me come back in here with all of my sound <laughs> equipment. I was like, oh, not like that in colorful Colorado, though. No, and at night it's like it's cold. It's quite refreshing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it is nice. It is nice. Well, hey, before we get too far into this, um, again, you're, uh, uh, well, introduce yourself. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay. So uh, um, I'm known kind of colloquially around here as Dr. Buck because one of my uh, avocations is as a musician. Uh, but my professional life is I'm the chair of the biomedical science department in the um, uh, School of Medicine for SIU in Carbondale. And it's kind of unknown to most people, but there are 500 uh, employees from the School of Medicine in Carbondale. So it's a big, big input here. Uh, And so I uh, grew up in Colorado, grew up in Denver, went to the University of Colorado, uh, and then in graduate school at the Health Sciences Center in Denver, where I met my wife. Then we postdoc at Michigan, and then I got my first faculty position at UIC. Lived in Oak Park for 20 years and then was recruited to Carbondale. And we just love it in Carbondale. This is such a great place to be. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what I was going to say before I had you introduce yourself is before we get too far, I know that some prospective students are tuning in right now. They maybe want to hear more about what you do here at the program at SIU. Uh, before we get too far, cannabiscenter.siu.edu. We'll throw that link in the podcast description. Definitely go to the website, check it out. Uh, it's a good one-stop shop for everything that SIU Carbondale has to offer with regard to the Cannabis Center, which is Absolutely. why we're here. I think most people would imagine that's why we at the Chillinois Podcast decided to stop by. Um, tell us about what you're doing here at the Cannabis Center at uh, SIU. All right. So we... Um from my research perspective, we've been really interested in using natural products to for the prevention of cancer. And there's a lot of kind of folkloric belief that cannabinoids not only have palliative effects, but they also may have cancer preventative effects. So we uh, started an exploration in our, we have a unique animal model that spontaneously gets ovarian cancer, the, the laying hen. And so we've been doing studies to see if we can prevent ovarian cancer in the hand, exploiting the the phytocannabinoids. And so since I have this real interest in natural products and and, um, 
you know, cannabis medicine, I found I had some very like-minded colleagues here at SIU. Uh, the first was Carla Gage uh, in, in ag, and she, when the first time I met her, we were talking about starting to get something along these lines, and she had a, a, a SIU branded shirt that said, Weed Science, and I thought, this is perfect. <laughs> yeah. But because that's what she said, he's actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, the weed competition and, and things like that, so. Um, and so that's, so she's really an agricultural person. She's really developed this whole agricultural component of, of the burgeoning uh, hemp science group. And then the other component is the analytical component. Because um, as you know, in order to uh, have a crop be deemed hemp, it has to have less than 0.3% THC. And so it's difficult to find uh, real-time analysis to, you know, to help the farmers. And so we really have established quite a good relationship with the, the, the Southern Illinois hemp industry. There's a lot, there's a huge industry here. And one of the things is we're helping, especially Dr. Mary Kinsel in, in chemistry to do, uh, you know, turnaround time, 24 hours for doing these cannabinoid analyses. So we're working with um, uh, premium extracts and DeCoin, uh, Paul Purcell's group, where they're doing a lot of high throughput CBD extraction, and she's helping to perfect their extraction techniques. So we realized with these three are those two groups locals, local yeah. farms. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so we realized we had these real similar interests, and then it was really with the uh, the the farm bill of uh, of 2018 when uh, industrial hemp became. It was no longer a controlled substance. Yeah. And the whole of the thing started. So just soon after that, we kind of got, had a little meeting here where we. And that get, was in like 2018. Yeah. It's like, actually, this was in 2019. When 2019. Because okay. it was like December 2018. Right. When, yeah. And so uh, early 2019, we started to think about this. Um, and we wanted to know how we could position SIU to address this. And so we had a meeting here and the number of people who came from, from all around, you know, from the. Uh, uh, National Cold Ethanol Research Center in Edwardsville, local uh, physicians, um, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs. And, you know, we got to know people like Aerosource H. I mean, there's a squish. There's a lot of local entrepreneurial uh, in the hemp business. And so we all came together and realized, you know, we, we really have something here. And so we, we decided academically to form a center. And so we sort of built it around the website uh, and we and we brought these entities together, and we realized there's a common theme to all these is the cannabis education program, and so we have a, a cannabis certificate program uh, housed in, the, in in horticulture and forestry in the College of Agriculture, um, and and we have a, a faculty that was hired the cannabis faculty Jose Leme, and we're really working on developing a, a a robust and full cannabis curriculum, and I think in the next two years we'll probably be towards having a bachelor's degree in, in cannabis. So, yeah. so it's just a, a matter of we're all really interested in the same kind of thing and, uh, and the kind of the synergy of us putting this together. Uh, and, and my dean from the, the, the uh, School of Medicine, uh, Jerry Cruz, was very generous in giving me release time to, to help to develop the center. And I'm, uh, he sees it as, as a real win-win. Uh, and we're kind of thinking about how the success of the Fermentation Science Institute. And... So the natural thing then was to get together with, you know, fermentation science and hemp, and then our friends in the Macanda Mushroom Festival. So that's was sort of the genesis of the idea of, 
uh, hemp hops and shrooms, yeah. which is happening October or September 24th. Yeah. Yeah. Hemp hop shrooms, September 24th, uh, here in Carbondale. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I got to ask you, you know, before we get to all the awesome things that you're doing, I have to imagine, and I feel like this is, it's important to have this conversation. I have to imagine that, um, it wasn't as easy of a conversation as, Hey, let's do a cannabis center. Okay. Let's do like, you know, like if you want to start a new program on music, like, uh, let's, let's start this new music program. Like there's, it's like, okay, what do we need to make that happen? Yeah. But with cannabis, there's this, I guess the best word for it is stigma. Absolutely. Um, did, can you tell me like, was there, was there a path toward acceptance? Like, how did we get here? Did you, was there like any opposition, I guess is really what I'm asking about. I'd say we're still gaining acceptance. Okay. And I think the conservative, uh, nature of the institution is reflected in that the degree program is called intensive indoor horticulture and not, you know, but 95% of the students are in the cannabis business. And this was two, three years ago when they started that. And I think they're very cautious. And, and the fact that we have based our whole of our enterprise on hemp has really lessened any kind of the uh, institutional resistance. And I think what they see is something that's cross campus, everyone's excited about, and they see this as potential for uh, a, a real uh, you know, cash cow for the university as well. Working with the, um, the Dunn-Richmond Innovation Center uh, with, uh, with Lynn Lindbergh, they are visionaries there too, in terms of reaching out to cannabis entrepreneurs to bring them into the SIU family. So it seems like there's a little bit of resistance early on, especially with branding ourselves as cannabis science. But I think now we've definitely, considering we've got Illinois Board of Higher Education certification for the center, I think um, we've really done a lot to, to kind of uh, get past that resistance. Good. Yeah. And I, I think that conversation's important because um, I don't, I don't see enough colleges pursuing this. And I feel like a conversation I'm constantly trying to have is the, the embrace of having this information peer reviewed and like, you know, like we should embrace that. We should, we should want to make sure that any claims surrounding cannabis are verifiably true, or at least, you know, from what we can tell. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, to that point, um, in our, it was our actual second annual, a hemp cannabis symposia, but it was actually the first one we had in person. It's just in March. Um, and there was this big buzz, uh, so to speak, that came about about the potential of CBD having anti-COVID actions. Mm, yeah. It's like January, these papers came out. And, you know, it just caught fire. And I had people calling, so I smoke a lot of weed, so I'm not getting COVID, right? And so this is kind of the prevailing mindset. Um, and so there's actually a group of uh, investigators at the University of Chicago headed by, by uh, Marsha Rosner. Um, and they rigorously examine this question and the idea that, that, um, that it, you know, would prevent infection and all this, it wasn't really borne out. But what they did find was that the CBD stopped viral replication. So it didn't stop it from getting infected, but it stopped infection from continuing. And it was CBD that did it not THC, not CBG. So they did a very rigorous. And so when we had our symposia, 
uh, Marsha came here and was one of our keynote speakers. And she really laid this out, went through the science and talked about, you know, the how you do these clinical trials and, and, and the, the rigor with which they approached it. And she said, despite her skepticism, she agrees that CBD has anti-COVID actions. Yeah. yeah. But interestingly, and this is from our work, is that the action of the CB1 versus the CB2 receptor are antagonistic. Mm -hmm. And and that so if you activate CB1, it actually is pro-inflammatory. So in fact, those guys that are smoking THC could actually exacerbate the condition instead of ameliorate it. Right. So I mean, that's the kind of stuff we're finding out. So very interesting. And you mentioned the cannabis symposium. I think it's important to mention you got another one coming up. So if you want to see cool substantive talks like that and network. Yeah. Tell us when that's coming up. Yeah, so this is uh, uh, September 17th. And, and the focus of this one, and, and, and Dr. Gage is really leading the charge on this, is to really look at the, uh, the development of the fiber industry. Because, it, you know, because hemp gives us three miracle crops, right? Because the fiber, you know, hemp rope, all that, that's the origin of the hemp in Illinois, was from the, from the rope industry. And then, of course, we all know that the flower is the source of CBD. And then the third and really important agricultural component is the seed. So the hemp seed is the most proteinaceous of all of the kinds of seeds that are available. It has good omega-3 fatty acids in there, high fiber. Um, and so we're working in the, in the uh, Innovation Center and with Dr. Gage to really develop the fiber industry crop. We have a group at Sykeston, Midwest Natural Fibers, and they're going to participate in the symposium. We have a group from called Trilogene, uh, centered in Colorado, who are working on um, hemp plant genetics specifically to make cultivars that are very specific for this area. And sort of the focus of the, of the symposia um, on, on September 17th is really more of the ag agro business. And it comes back to, you know, the business of developing the, the CBD industry as well as the seed and the fiber crop. So I think it's going to be a very meaningful, very industry oriented symposia. And we'll have vendors like we did last year. Um, and then, which was really great after the symposia, we all went to the Buckwater brewery and had a, the conversations continued. It, it was really great. So, um, and this out just happens to be the weekend before the uh, hemp, Hops and Shrooms Festival. Yeah. Well, there, there you go, folks. If you're looking to have a couple weeks of uh, fun, you got the Hemp Hop and Shrooms Festival. That was September what? Uh, 24th. 24th. And then what was the uh, symposium again? September 17th. Cool. And we'll have links to those events in the uh, show notes as well, folks. Um, just to dwell on this topic for a, a bit longer before we get to uh, some fun, fun stuff. Um, I noticed your choice of language and maybe our viewers did too. I want to give you an opportunity uh, to explain it. I loved it, by the way. Uh, you use the word cultivar instead of strain. Strain, of course, is a word borrowed from microbiology. We're all familiar with it now because of COVID. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the new strain. What's the new strain? Um, tell us a little bit about, uh, just before we get into anything deeper, what does cultivar mean? And uh, is it agronomy or horticulture? Yeah, I would say that the, the term of the idea of cultivar is that these are selected um, strains, if you will, yep. with particular properties that you're seeking, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and then you, you know, you can entrain different properties by selective breeding. And then each of those, that's what I think of them as cultivars. Yeah. yeah. 
And then there would be uh, maybe if you don't have those select characteristics, would you then refer to that as maybe a variety? Is that am I correct in thinking that, that that's how those terms work. I, I am yeah. way out of my understanding. Well, when I, you know, so, so the, they had the, the, the land race strains, right. Kind of originally. Yeah. And I think, um, so I'm not sure the precision of the language, uh -huh. but I think we've thought about is when they sort of arrive from selective breeding, their cultivars, but it, you know, maybe you can go after specific strains, you know, maybe using genetic tools yeah. or things like that. Yeah. The reason I bring it up is, uh, it was interesting. I was riding through the country the other day and I started to look at the signs that are in the cornfields. I've never looked at them before. And I noticed that I, I believe it said like the variety number of the, uh, of the corn that was decalb, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, it, that was just interesting to me because I, as I'm starting to become aware of these terms, admittedly, I don't understand them yet. Um, but, uh, as I'm starting to become aware of these terms, you start to see them in other places in agriculture and it's like, Oh, yeah. Uh, so I, 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 like I say, I wanted to dwell on that for a moment because it's like, we're in this transitionary period where I feel like the word strain probably, I mean, I don't know, honestly, it'd be interesting to do the the history on this, but I feel like the word strain is residual or, or from the, like the legacy market or the black market days. Like they'd be like, Oh, you know, I've got this new strain. And I feel like it was like a code word for like flavor, a new yeah. type, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I feel like as, as we move away from those days and, and kind of come into the light, I feel like we're going to hear people saying this cultivar, like you just said, you know, so just, and I think cultivar also, um, it sounds more wholesome somehow or something. Mm -hmm. yeah, it has a better yeah. feel to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So yeah, strain just, especially with what we've learned through COVID strain almost doesn't sound good. Like it's like, Oh, there's a new strain. I was like, Oh, oh yeah. With COVID, yeah. <laughs> Do I need to? Yeah. yeah. So anyways, um, once again, cannabiscenter.siu.edu link is in the podcast description. Let's talk about, um, what we're doing here at SIU Carbondale. Uh, there's a lot of cool things. We were just in a lab. I'll, I'll get some footage of the lab here in a bit. Maybe we'll play it while we're chatting. Um, Tell, tell us what you guys are doing here. You mentioned hens earlier. Yeah. Uh, what's going on? And so um, some years ago, uh, I was interested in potential of using ovarian cancer uh, to study the role of inflammation as what causes cancer. Because it's kind of become more apparent in the last 20 years that this is really important for cancer. And so a, a colleague of mine said, well, you know, the only really good model for for ovarian cancer is the chicken. And I thought that sounded just didn't make sense because chickens lay eggs and women have babies, you know. But it turns out that the ovaries are remarkably similar in terms of how often you ovulate. So a hen ovulates every day. So after two years, she's ovulated four or 500 times. A woman, when she reaches menopause, is ovulated four or 500 times. And there are few other species that ovulate that number of times. And only the chicken gets the same ovarian cancer that women get. So it's a really very tractable model for studying the origin of the disease and for developing prevention strategies. What are we looking at here, Buck? This is uh, ovarian cancer from a chicken. It's advanced late stage cancer. Now, uh, all of it, is this yeah. white, the cancer? Or? Yeah, the white, the cancerous part is the white. And then these are the 
that would have been the egg yolks, but they've been subsumed by the cancer. Very cool. But I just think in terms of just a sort of an entity or phenomenon, it's just so fascinating. Yeah. 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 Cancer's ugly. In general, when women are, are afflicted with ovarian cancer, it's diagnosed at a very late stage, very bad prognosis, and limited treatment options. Um, and so much of cancer science is kind of focused on treating late-stage disease, whereas we think the cure for cancer is in prevention and stopping early disease from progressing. And so the chicken gives us the opportunity to look at the origin of the disease. And so we did a study targeting that inflammation with flaxseed because we know it's rich in omega-3. And this actually turned out to be just a, a really great guess. And there's a lot of stuff going on there. And we've been very successful in terms of getting funding and in terms of publishing to kind of put the chicken on, on, the, on the map. And especially for this uh, prevention type research. And so then with all of our interest in, um, you know, locally grown, it occurred to me that the problem with flax in Illinois is it's not grown here. You have to really need a cold climate to get really good flax. Um, And besides that, the yield per acre is so low, people want 250 bushels an acre instead of one bushel an acre, you know. So I thought, well, but what grown here is this whole huge burgeoning hemp market. And it's been reported sort of folklorically, if not to have anti-cancer properties. So that was one of the kind of reasons we decided to start to look at that. And and as soon as we started talking about this, we've got all kinds of excitement and support. And when we originally set out to think, okay, so we're going to use phytocannabinoids. So those are the ones that, you know, come from plants, um, of which there are a huge variety. But the THC, Delta 9 THC and CBD are the two most uh well-known or most prominent and and to see if we could actually because we've shown that if you do intervention with flaxseed you can prevent and treat ovarian cancer based on that logic the same kind of natural product profile and so we started into this and found that it behaves differently in a lot of ways in terms of its disposition and when you eat it what happens to it um and we started to think well what's what's going on with this and we, we observed this phenomenon, which is called fibrosis. And this is common, uh, like when you get a wound and then you get that scar tissue and it's fibrotic. Or if you, you know, have cirrhosis of the liver, that's a disease of fibrosis. Pulmonary fibrosis, uh, fibrosis of the pancreatic stellate cells. And it turns out that this fibrosis is associated with worse cancer. So the fibrosis exacerbates and makes the cancer worse. And we observed in our uh, hen model that the flax diet significantly reduces fibrosis of the ovary. And so we've now come to realize that that's one of the ways that flaxseed works to attack the cancer is by reducing the tissue fibrosis. And so when we're reading about fibrosis, we found out that this is driven by the CB1 receptor in the endocannabinoid system. So it kind of revolutionized our thinking. So instead of using phytocannabinoid therapy, instead we're sort of attacking the overexpression of the endocannabinoid system to try to, as a, as a druggable target for cancer prevention. Very interesting. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. I don't mean to take us off on a tangent, but you brought up the seeds and and, uh, the fact that the cannabis seeds or hemp seeds are really rich in omega-3 fatty acids. Is it 
is it true? And I'm not expecting just because you've worked with a chicken that you're an aviator, avian expert by any means. Is that the right word for birds? Avi, yeah, right. Avian. Um, I'm not expecting you to know this answer, but I heard admittedly, and as you do hear these things in a smoke circle that, um, when prohibition originally came about and people were like, what are, what are we going to do with this, with cannabis? What are we going to do that? The, the bird industry or people that feed birds were one of the first people that actually got legal access to seed because they were able to argue that because they were so rich in omega three, um, that they're like essential for birds. I, is there any, have you heard about that? Is there any truth in that? Or is that maybe just something from my stoner circle? <laughs> um, I, I can't say that I, I could validate that. as okay. But I think the reason that what's so attractive about hemp seed as a, uh, as a feed crop is it's protein nature. It's mm-hmm. the most proteinaceous. So 25% of its weight is protein. Yeah. And I think that's what our, our interest at SA in developing it for animal feed because of how proteinaceous it is. Um, whereas flaxseed has a much higher amount of omega-3 fatty acid than than um, hemp seed, but not nearly as much protein. And then chia seed also has protein and omega-3, but it has a much higher fiber content. So the three of them together would be the ideal seed. You know? Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Cool. Well, that's, that's cool to learn. Um, so tell me about like, you know, I, I think I could try to be funny here and say that the chickens are back there smoking bongs, but that's obviously not how it works. How does administration happen? I did the little, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming it's a syringe of some sort. No, in fact, in fact, what we do is we, um, pill them. Okay. So we actually have a pill maker. Um, and so we make all these, uh, so they all have like, uh, about 500, about a half a mil. And then we just make what we put in or different concentrations for doing dosing pills are different colors. Um, and so then we dissolve the cannabinoid in coconut oil, MMCT actually, it's very soluble. And then we pipette them into all these little capsules. And then every day we go down there and put a pill in every chicken's mouth. Gotcha. And so for the small scale studies we're doing here at SIU with 30 hens, 40 hens, this is feasible. Mm -hmm. But for the large scale studies that we've done in collaboration with the U of I, we have hundreds and hundreds of hens. And so the delivery of the CBD that way was so labor intensive that we really need to think of a better way to do it. Gotcha. Because, you know, it takes, it doesn't take long to peel any one hen, but if you're doing five or six or hundred a day, you know, that's like a full-time job. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but it seems to be the most effective way to get them, get it into them. I'm just trying to wrap my head around it still. So ovarian cancer, there's like an overexpression going on and you're, a, you've found that CBD can explain it to okay. me again, please. Okay. So, so the endocannabinoid system, uh, is there's two receptors, CB1, mm-hmm. CB2, and they, um, signal the same way molecularly, but their tissue distribution is very different. So CB2 is more in the immune system and CB1 is more in the neuronal system, right? But, but even though they signal through the same way, they have very different actions and results. Uh, and in tissues where they're both expressed, which seems to happen in cancer, that the CB2 opposes the CB1. So it's not, I'd say that the CB1, and, and it's really not known how it contributes to fibrosis, but it, but we anticipate it must be involved in wound healing. 
activation of the CB1 system to help enhance wound healing. And then in cancer, it's like we say, it's a wound that will not heal. Yeah. And so the, the overexpression of that to initiate the wound healing isn't stopped. And so you get more and more inflammation, more, uh, more fibrosis, more collagen deposition. Um, and so that seems to prevent immune cells from getting into the tissue. And so we're constantly having immune surveillance. So our immune system's going around looking for cells that aren't right. Because this happens all the time because we're constantly bombarded by environmental pressure. And so when they see cells that are recognized as non-self, the immune system gets rid of them. And so probably, you know, 99.99% of the time, we never see any neoplasia because the immune system effectively gets rid of it. But what happens with cancer is that when it takes hold, it actively tries to evade immune detection. So that's kind of the whole basis of this new found interest in immune-based therapy for cancer to kind of get around that immune suppression. Um, but what happens is the cancer physically impedes the immune cells from getting in because of all of this fibrosis. So the tangle of all this collagen uh, changes the access of the immune system to the tumor. And so then when they're cold, they don't have immune cells, there's nothing to keep them in check. But we've found that hot tumors that have more immune cells have a much lower tumor burden and a much better cancer outcome. And that flaxseed actually promotes the decrease in fibrosis. Uh, so that's probably one of the beneficial things it does. And we're currently looking at the interaction between the endocannabinoid system and these other things that are anti-fibrotic, like metformin, which is the most common anti-diabetic drug, also has a, reduces fibrosis. So um, it's just pretty interesting. So how exactly that works, we don't know, but it looks pretty promising that for some reason the activation of this system, where CB2 opposes that. Now CBD doesn't actually signal via either those receptors, but it can uh, antagonize or, or modulate, uh, you know, like THC activating that receptor. So that's why we think that you can kind of uh, kind of reduce some of the psychoactive effects of THC if you also include CBD in your in your preparation. It really kind of takes off that kind of psych edge, but maybe that's what you're seeking to dial in your CBD accordingly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the same thing happens with in terms of the in, in inflammation and driving the fibrosis. That CBD blunts that CB1 activation that drives the collagen program. Very interesting. Now, I feel like. The answer to this question is yes, but chickens have a CB1 and CB2 receptor? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I gotcha. In fact, I have a poster in the hall where we've shown this. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have to we'll yeah. get a picture of that yeah. in here. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, before we got on air uh, some of the, the other um, cannabinoids, or I don't know if this is the more correct term, phytocannabinoids that you've exposed uh, these chickens to. Maybe more choice of wording on my part when I say exposed, but um, Delta Eight, yeah, uh, CBG or CBN, yeah. Um, tell us about some of the things you've seen with that. Okay, you know we've been talking about CBD and THC. Yeah, so um, CBN is kind of a breakdown product of THC and CBD, and so the reason we're interested in using CBN as is a kind of a recovery standard because it wouldn't normally be there. So we 
spike our samples with that so we use it so we can when we accurately quantify the cbd in the tissue then we so that's what we're interested in cbn um and so cbg i think there's a huge amount of potential for this but it seemed to behave differently from the cbd whereas the cbd was very in the hands was appetite suppressing the cbg didn't seem to have that particular effect but our observation was that the hens seemed to just have better overall well-being, which is hard to quantify. But you sense that they felt better, mm-hmm. you know, which is small-scale study, and these are old hens. But, you know, we're very, you could say, intimate with the hens because we work with them every day. And you can tell these, you know. Uh, they just I, seemed more lively. Yeah, more lively and, and that they just seemed like they're better off. Uh, a sort of metabolic well-being, which was very much what we observed in the flax. So I think the CBG has a significant uh, potential uh, without some of the complications of, of CBD. And I know, like our, our friends at Aerosource H, have a big CBG push they're they're putting on right now. A lot of the uh, plants that they're growing there are all CBG instead of CBD. So, so that we haven't really explored that, but we're really interested in that. But what we did find. And it's a hemp-derived cannabinoid. It's Delta-8 THC, um, which is about one-third as potent psychoactively as Delta-9. But it seems to have a constellation of different effects. And one of them is profound appetite stimulation. And so these hens that we fed with CBD became appetite-suppressed. We have learned subsequently that they have CBD two receptor in their hypothalamus, which is probably mediating that appetite suppression. Um, but when we we kind of rescued them because they were so like starved because they just weren't eating. So we gave them Delta 8 and this just was remarkable, the effect. Their appetites were so stimulated and they became so perky and, and they, they looked like they were getting ready to molt before and then they had this beautiful, fluffy, great feathers and, and it's like that. So the poultry industry should latch onto this, right? Yeah. Dose all their hens with Delta-8 and they'll have better chickens. Yeah, and how soon after did you notice some of these effects? Like, uh, like a I'm couple s- weeks. I mean, it's just a little bit of a gradual. Sure. But when we took them off with the CBD um, and let them kind of equilibrate, that seemed to stop their decline. That was exactly not what we hoped By to decline, see. By decline, you meant uh, the CBD was suppressing their appetite. Yeah, right. And so then they started to, you know, because they they shut off. Their sons, combs became blue, you know, they're cyanotic. It's yeah. Like, it's like something's gone. It was really interesting. But the, the thing is, these are old cancer-prone hens that we're using because they get over in cancer. And we're harvesting their cancers and reconstituting the tumors in tissue culture to study the tissue dynamics because we're interested in this the tissue stiffness and the role of the fibrosis and stuff so we're able to reconstruct this in 3d and tissue culture it's one of the projects with this we have collaborators at rockefeller university in new york that, that are working with us it's really really cool um and so we're we're basically using these old hands to get over in cancer from them and then we're playing with these cbds to see these kind of effects but we found there's a person um at West Virginia who wrote a, a master's thesis about CB2 in the chicken brain. And they had this appetite suppressive thing. So I thought that was pretty cool. So yeah. Yeah. Whereas I think THCV would have that effect in our brains. 
Yeah. The appetite suppressor. I was going to say that that's the one thing I had heard uh, about that specific cannabinoid. I had seen it in a small video once that, that we had evidence to possibly support THCV being an appetite suppressant. Yeah. So, you know, without a lot of evidence, so that spawned a whole industry. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, you I think it's real common to see uh, THC. Well, I mean, that's the story of CBD. Yeah. C <laughs> THCV, CBN, um, CBD, and they call it, um, uh, uh, what is it? Blissfully aware or something. Yeah. And they have these different products. So they, they really jumped onto this TC, THCV as an appetite suppressor. Um, I'm not, that's what's reported, but I can't see we have any actual that evidence. Support it. Yeah. Gotcha. It was unexpected that CBD did that. It was yeah. such a profound appetite. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have expected then on the flip side to hear that Delta eight. I mean, I I suppose it makes sense because a lot of people say that Delta eight is just diet weed. <laughs> I mean, like you said, it's a one third of the yeah. psychoactivity of regular just Delta nine THC. Is that the difference? Right. Yeah. Difference. Um very very interesting. Um any other thoughts on experiments with different phytocannabinoids or anything else i didn't want to cut you off by bringing up that thought yeah no, no but i think um you know the the model is tractable but the whole idea of understanding their effect on behavior that's kind of a new thing to us but you know chickens have a lot of behavior yeah and, and you can actually on an individual basis really kind of understand you know like this dominance and subordinate behavior you know pecking order yeah it's, like, it's pretty cool to see so yeah that is pretty crazy. Does it, I mean, I know that this isn't part of your, that's not the focus of your studies, so to say, but have you noticed any impact in the way that they treat each other socially? Uh, I know that's a weird, maybe a weird question, but just yeah. throwing it out there. Have you noticed anything? With so that? what we kind of inadvertently discovered was when we, you know, cause we select hands from the group with like three cages of 10, right? And they're kind of like mini free range, you know, because yeah. you'll see. Uh, and so we would harvest select hens. And so we got down that there's like only three per pen. So we thought, well, just out of efficiency, we'd combine them all together, right? This is a really bad idea. Because then they all start fighting and then they try to establish their new pecking order. And they are so dominant, you know. And then we tried to sort them back out. And then now they didn't remember who was what. And so it's like, oh, my God. So, it's like the Wild West. It was. And so that it was. Um, and they would, they'll peck a hen to death, you know. And then they, like, get one and they, they like, taste their blood. And then they all Go stand crazy. It. It's awful. It's like, it's like cannibals or something. <laughs> Uh, but maybe they needed to be dosed. It would help them. <laughs> dosed higher. <laughs> yeah. These, these studies are interesting. Um, do you feel any limitations by the fact that you are constrained to hemp? Um, I think we would, it would be really fruitful to be able to uh, rigorously contrast, you know, Delta 9 THC from the hemp derived cannabinoids. But to actually do that, we'd need DEA licensing and it's controlled substance. And so it's just possible that just requires more regulatory hurdles. Yeah. Whereas the opportunity we've had with working in hemp-based cannabinoids has really been unlimited. Yeah. 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 As a researcher, I would imagine that that's – the contrast is frustrating. Yeah. And also it really limits our access to federal funding. Because they, you know, uh, until it becomes legal, uh, 
you know, nationally, they're still going to have all those, you know, federal government uh, constraints, especially on NIH given, granted funding. Yeah. So in order to have that, you have to really have, you know, more of a DEA type approach, approved pharmacology type research. The kind of studies we're doing, they seem to be ahead of their time in terms of getting NIH support for those. So yeah, the NIH was very generous in supporting our flax research. Um, and, and it was kind of skeptically accepted by the ovarian cancer research community. Uh, but now I think we've actually shown a lot of, and you know, NIH really was important for that kind of thing. And I anticipate this will happen with the, with the, you know, cannabinoid business as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, just a, a sidebar question, if you will, I have not deduced at all that this is part of your study, but I'm just curious, like as, as a researcher, what you, what you think about this, if this would play any role, uh, there's a lot of claims. This is, this question is in the spirit of let's embrace science, right? And so the cannabis industry seems to like perpetuate things that I, they like act like it's science, but it's not necessarily based in science. I think a great example you might know that I'm, that I've talked about in the past is the idea that we separate the plants and sell it by indica, sativa, and hybrid. A new thing that the cannabis companies are trying to do is to market these products uh, based on a terpene, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what the terpene readout is. Do you use terpenes at all in your studies? Um, well, I think that's a new frontier. Yeah. We, haven't, we haven't gone there yet. But I think, you know, watching the, uh, the cannabis industry develop, it's clearly the era of the terps. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, a lot of what we understood, we believed it was strain-specific or whatever, actually really have to do with the complexity of the different terpene profiles. Yeah, and I think when when they really when vaping became such a popular way to, uh, you know, get your THC, then they started to mix in these botanical mixtures of different kind of terps to give the you know, and I think eighty five percent THC. There's nothing's going to have an effect on top of that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but in our our work, what we've done is to develop quantitative procedures for looking at terpene profiles, so that to help you know, especially Dr. Kensel in, in chemistry to really, cause that's a question that the farmers have, you know, does this have this lemonine or do we have the caryophyllin? Is this a mercine rich strain, you know? Yeah. So, so that's how they, they, they work on it. Yeah. And what's their, if you could try to, what, what is their basis for asking that question? Um, I think m more flavor profile than sure. effect. Sure. Cause I, I think the effects aren't, clearly understood and i don't know if isolated single terpenes really have much of an effect yeah i, I we we talked to a researcher once I, if you're interested i can share the the episode with you um they did studies uh for about five years specifically on the the role that terpenes play and if there's entourage or the entourage effect and he claims to have found none um but there are studies that uh, indicate that if you like there, there's a study that people always point out and they say, well, this you want to say that terpenes don't have effects. Look at this study. And I looked at that study with him um, and I can link it in the show notes. I'll try to remember um, the one study that most people point to 
with regard to effects on terpenes, these mice were injected with like large amounts. So, so yes, maybe those terpenes have those effects, but they're not as statistically significant within cannabis, like naturally, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if you look at a terpene readout, like I think the highest percentage I've ever seen on a terpene readout is like a 6%, like limonene coming in at 6%. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I can smell it. Yeah. So I don't, I don't contest. I always have to say this for folks that are listening. I don't contest the existence of terpenes. I'm not sure about the effects of terpenes. Um, but, but again, it's all part of this conversation of trying to embrace science. What, what is, what's true, what's not, you know, and what can we rest our hat on? Cause I guess just to wrap this up, uh, this, this specific topic up, the reason I harp on it so much, um, my co-host actually gave me some validity. She used to be a bud tender and she said, you know, all these things you talk about, I think about if I was still a bud tender, it would make my job really hard to do. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not trying to get you out of a job, but that's exactly it. The things you've been taught as a bud tender are tactics to sell people on. So Indica Sativa Hybrid, a, a three-tiered approach, simple, keep it simple, upper, downer, middle, <laughs> you know. And then the terpene, the terpene thing, like you say, this is the age of the terps, so that's started to become a thing. Um, but that's exactly it. I, I, I think that the, some of these terms, instead of being based in science and understanding, they're based in just trying to flip product for a buck, Yeah, you know, which is sad, but, but that's why I'm so excited about things like what you're doing yeah. here. But I think, you know, that kind of, it, it's kind of shows sort of the, the maturation of the field too. You know, to get more entrepreneurs, they jump on and they see handles they can grab a hold of. Yeah. But I think in terms of the science of, of cannabis, that the terpenes are really being fully embraced in a very rigorous and scientific way. Yeah. But it, like, I think that it, if you take, you know, pure lemonine and inject it into a mouse, th when would that ever happen? You know, it's <laughs> exactly. the same kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it's like I was thinking about when they, they showed a, 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 a aspartame was, uh, aspartamine was car carcinogenic, right? Mm that you know sweetener right right it's because they did they give like pounds of it to rats and <laughs> <laughs> yeah when are we so gonna <laughs> it's, it's, if you push something enough you can get an effect sure. and does that mean if you have it in a relevant dose does it still have that effect that's something that we address in science regularly because yeah. people push stuff up till they get an effect and then they try to see if it's relevant mm-hmm well, let's take a moment to talk a little bit about the program, the the program and the classes you offer. Like if I signed up for a class now, like what, what would I be taking first and what would maybe be included in my first yeah. semester? Yeah. And so I think, you know, these degrees as yet are, are still housed in, in the, uh, in the college or the school of forestry and, um, forestry and horticulture. So sort of the, 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 the main thrust of it is sort of really horticulturally mm -hmm. oriented. So you take a lot of the standard horticultural curriculum and then you take the, the intensive indoor horticultural things. And then uh, we're working on developing new content as yet. So I think we're still uh, about a year away from actually having a robust bachelor's level offerings like that. But we, we have, you know, um, quite a number of students who are enrolled in this and they're you know, the idea is to develop the workforce for the, the burgeoning industry. And I think we're positioned in a place to really develop this really robust curriculum, but we're still, it's still a work in progress. So, If I would have asked you 20 years ago when you were in Chicago, was it 
you said yeah. 20 years ago, um, that you would be helping with an accredited program that related to cannabis. Would you ask if I was high? Or would <laughs> <laughs> no, what I'm, uh, that was a joke. Uh, would like, you believe it? Would you believe it? Um, like, is it, is it, yeah, is it a little it, weird it, for you to, it is and, happen so and quickly. it's still, um, you know, uh, those of us have grown up, uh, uh, in this era, it's been a very covert and secretive thing mm-hmm. and to have it out front. And this is as a distinguished professional member of the school of medicine and advocating this, that's a huge seed change, unexpected, unanticipated. Yeah. Um, it seemed it was so. I mean, you know, people are getting busted for seeds then, you know, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. So I, I've seen that the decriminalization was the first step and then, you know, uh, medical and then, you know, adult use, uh, at some point it's just going to have to be national. And then that's going to, it's going to be such a huge, uh, profit engine that it, I think that's going to, what's going, what's going to occur. But no, yeah. I mean, I think it, it's developing it is just a blindingly fast pace now and how relaxed people are about having these detailed conversations about these things is definitely new. Yeah. Yeah. It's refreshing a little bit too. And also the stuff that is around now wasn't here 20 years ago. What do you mean by that? In terms of, you know, what, what was the most exotic kind of, uh, you know, cannabis, you get like tie sticks or something like that. I mean, it's like just, and they had, you know, 12% THC or something. So just the, the growth and the, the expansion of all the different varieties, if yeah, you will. Yeah. It's been remarkable. Well, yeah, yeah I, I get what you mean now. I mean, there's lotion, you roll rub lotion on yeah. and get high, dab pen, different types of edibles, uh, drink mixes. Yeah. Yeah. Taco it, seasoning. I saw taco seasoning. Oh, very good. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, that, you can see that. It's, I think the edibles, though, I think that's the big market of it student who got a job working at um, um, Arise and their job was to put um, THC on the gummies. And um, I think the problem is a lot of those are so sugar rich, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what is it going to bind to? I say that as a person that loves to make edibles. It's like, how do we make this? How do we make this work? You know, we had um, for the last symposium, we had some guys from from Rockford. They have a bakery there called uh, Wake and Bake Bakery. Yeah, Wake and Bakery. Yeah. Is that what you, yeah, yeah, those guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, that that and and their knowledge and interest of the Delta Eight and novel cannabinoids and beyond. Yeah, um, that was that was really cool. Very valuable. Yeah, I've never met them. I've heard good things about uh, what they do. In fact, I think my co-host did go to their store and got like a, a scone and a drink that had Delta Eight in it. It was pretty. Yeah, cool. they they actually had some of that we're sampling here. Yeah, it's good stuff. Was uh. I can't remember. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what do you think the, obviously, you know, we're looking to the future possible, you said bachelor's uh, program, possibly that could shake out. What, what else do you think like the future holds for cannabis research here at SIU? But if you want to take it broader than that, feel free to. Yeah. So I think, you know, in terms of the educational program, well, we are actively working, partnering with the numerous community colleges in the state, all over Harvey College in Chicago, yeah. where they have a real interest in developing a cannabis curriculum. But they don't have the agricultural component. Most you know community colleges don't. And so we're, we're really actively looking at developing these two plus two programs 
with with formal cannabis education. And I think in the next couple of years, this is really going to be in terms of the education thing, developing the workforce for tomorrow. This is going to be, I think, the the big thing, this education piece. And who's better to an education than the university, right? Exactly. Yeah, so this is this is great. Okay. And then what I find the university involvement locally, having the impetus of SIU has made all these entrepreneurs feel validated in a lot of ways. Like the, like the, the you know, the Lawlers over there at Squish, I mean, they, they've been partnering with us since, since we started talking about this. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Nathaniel Pepe at Aerosource, that guy's, these guys are, they are so smart and they know so much about what they're doing and they're so accessible and they're just really happy to interact with us. And I think associated with the university is really big for developing the, the industry in the area too. And I think the whole field of cannabis medicine is just really in its infancy. Uh, and I think we have to win the hearts of the average physician. And I think that's one of our big challenges to get SIH to say, yeah, medical cannabis, sure. Mm -hmm. I think on a kind of a case by case basis, they're open to the idea, but I think they're still pretty conservative about that. Yeah, yeah. I actually was listening to a report that was talking about, I think it was produced about a year ago and it was a, a report where they were talking to somebody from here and they were talking about physician acceptance and the fact that some were open-minded to it, but a, a number, especially here in Southern Illinois, um, wouldn't recommend it. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't recommend against it, but they wouldn't recommend it. So it's like, how do we, how do we change those uh, opinions? And and like you say, I think that the embrace by higher education is the way to go. Yeah. Because that's where people like that come from. That's where <laughs> doctors come from, you know? Right. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I find it so important. And just to dwell on the, uh, the idea of how quickly times have changed. I talked to Dr. DK Lee, who's going to be at the upcoming symposium. Yeah, yeah we're correct? excited yeah. to get to know him. Yeah. So folks, if you haven't checked out that episode, uh, with Dr. DK Lee from the university of Illinois, we'll have that, uh, link in the show notes. Um, it's kind of funny. I took a picture with Dr. Lee in his hemp field at the university of Illinois. And it, it's just funny because, in the picture and I'll display it now for folks that want to see it. Um, you can see in the distance street lights, like the green, you know, green, yellow, red lights. So it's like, okay, that's, this is obviously in a town because it was in Champaign. Um, but then you, you notice like the hemp field is surrounded by corn fields. So I just, I imagine people like flying over it and like, you just think <laughs> about back in the day, if oh, you yeah. flew over that field, you'd be like, whoa, there's a, there's a, there's obviously a grow up right there. But nowadays people might still notice it, but they're like, oh, well, that's, that's yeah. just the U of I. But I think, you know, like hemp, right? The average person thinks it's uh you know, THC cannabis, right? Mm -hmm. And so security is a real issue in terms of stealing plants. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So having it surrounded by corn is probably a wise thing. <laughs> yeah. Now, what do you think about that? Uh, I think that's a good, this is a topic I always like to wrap around with, with folks like you that are kind of constrained by the control that uh, is imposed on cannabis by the CSA, the Controlled Substances Act. Um, do you think that it would just be that you would need more regulation or do you think that we should just simply treat cannabis like we treat hemp and i guess 
to just add the I lost where I was going in the middle of that question. Um, to add like the, the spirit of that question is, as you may know, there is no real difference between cannabis and hemp other than that what we've written into the law, which is the 0.03% of THC. Right. It's like uh, the reason I asked that question uh, is it's like, in what other instance are you planting a plant, but depending on how it shakes out, it's going to be a different plant? Yeah. Or, or <laughs> what day? I mean, yeah. Right, right. No, I think that's the only field I've ever seen. And it seems arbitrary too. Very. Yeah. And I think that will lessen the time. I mean, because the, the worst thing that happens to these hemp guys is that their field goes hot. And then, the, you know, FDA comes out and burns their field. Yeah, but that's just, it's so crazy because I, I like, wonder. like a 0.1%. Yeah, it's like, right. yeah. I wonder though, you know, you, we've got all these cornfields here in Illinois and I'd love to see either hemp be used as a rotation crop because I've heard about oh, yeah. what it can do for, for the soil, like it re-amends it or, or whatever. Um, but I just feel like some of the hesitation is not only stigma or like you mentioned, people being worried about teenagers coming in and trying to steal their weed. Um, but the, the biggest thing is that it is a gamble. Like you're planting the seeds and you can't guarantee at the end of the seat. First of all, as a farmer, you can never guarantee at the end of the season that you're going to harvest. Absolutely. Right. But this is even more of a risk than just farming, which is a lot. I mean, that's a gamble in it. By nature <laughs> yeah so yeah i think i think um that whole the you know the difficulty faced with this kind of arbitrary limit is is quite quite limiting um and i i think that that would you know change the time but it's kind of amazing and i don't really know why they came up with that 0.3 percent seems arbitrary anyway well and if you've heard about i don't know if you've heard but <laughs> People have figured out how to make it 0.03% of the complete product. But so, for example, you can buy 100 milligram um, edibles that have discernibly the same effect that they do from a dispensary, but they're legal because, technically speaking, even though they do have 10 milligrams of THC, just like an edible would. That 10 milligrams is just 0.03% of the entire edible itself. So they've like figured out a yeah. way around that. I think there's a lot of that going on in terms of people developing high THC uh, cultivars that are legal. Yes. Because you know, they somehow fit around those things. Yes, exactly. So, so you know, you're, you're right about regulation and, and should we just deregulate it completely? I think the problem with that, and, and this really emerged in our symposia, was this whole Delta 8 and all this thing, it's... I think it needs regulation. Yeah. Because I mean, we had people at the symposium who kind of, I think they kind of graduated from the meth field into the cannabis field with, you know, because it really helped them in terms of opioid addiction mediation. I mean, it's, it really saved them to now be using cannabis instead of meth, right? But they have these really great cooking skills, right? And they're able to cook up these cannabinoid mixtures from hemp that I, I would say, could be dangerous. We don't know what they are. Uh, THCP. Yeah, THCO. THCO, yeah, HHC. And these are like really potent psychoactive things that are poorly understood, poorly regulated. And while I think I'm a big advocate for, you know, the, the free range of the, of the market, but I think certain kind of regulation is going to help the industry. It's going to protect us. Yeah. Because uh, 
you know, uh, you know, Delta Eight is. I mean, it's amazing what how much fire this created everywhere. Like JB Hawks, you go over there, big giant Delta Eight, you know. Or we used to drive through Missouri; they're all Delta Eight or Kraton, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, and if those references didn't get anybody, I'll throw another one out there: Family Video. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they became like a CBD store. It's like a movie rental was dying, but the CBD business is good. Yeah. That, that was amazing. You know, I think at the, at the time, it was such a great, it was so expensive, you could really make a high profit margin. But I think the market got saturated. Well, and I think one of the biggest problems was that they made the testing only about the THC. They're like, we just want to make sure nobody gets high. <laughs> and so it, what it became is that it was dangerous. So companies weren't obliged to test for heavy metals. Oh, yeah. You name it. There, let's just make sure there's not a lot of tea. We don't want to make, we don't want anybody to get high. Yeah. We don't care if they die from lead poisoning from the product. Not saying that that ever happened. Or, or, but. or what the, whatever the makes the vapes volatile, you know, like ethylene glycol and stuff yes, like that. Yes. That was a and, big thing. Yeah. And that's not just for the hemp or the, you know, uh, the in, inhalers for the THC business, but certainly for Juul. I mean, that's a real mm -hmm. question with it. And I think vaping may actually be more, more harsh than smoke, you know. So, yeah. 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 But, so, but again, you know, you can go to gas station in Johnson city and buy THCV vapes. Mm. It's like, well, what is that? You know, so, right. yeah, or THCP or whatever these are. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, so I think that regulation is going to help the industry yeah. um, as much as by our nature, because we're sort of rebels, I guess yeah. we don't want the regulation, Yeah, but I think at some point it's going to be necessary. Yeah, like you say, I think I think you're dead on target. You're just going to need some soft controls. And I say soft controls because I just don't want to end up in a similar situation to what we are in now, which is like, you know, all of a sudden this plant's cannabis instead of hemp. And it's like, but wait a minute, I bought hemp seed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just so frustrating, I'm sure, for especially for the farmers. Yeah, and so. I'm not sure what form that regulation would take, but I think it definitely warrants looking into I was thinking about asking you uh, about it. It's, you know, I don't know. Uh, I know that some people uh, that we've talked to on the show say that the FDA should regulate it. Some people say, hell no, the FDA shouldn't have any part in it. I don't know where to stand. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think it should be uh, industry regulated you and self-directed self, self, self -directed okay. yeah. to help deal with some of the potential toxicity or harmful effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I almost wonder... Like with so it, the only issue I have with self-regulated is that some people, some people try to describe the cannabis industry as it is self-regulated because there's independent. They say independent testing labs, okay, but people sh they look for the lab that they want to use, and so you've seen. I don't know if you've seen, but I've seen, and we've shared, uh, you know, test testing data and fraud. Fraudulent activity related to cannabis testing is rampant in the ca cannabis industry. I, it's interesting. I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard that the DEA testing labs would probably be the best place to get your cannabis tested because they're just the DEA. They don't really have any, you know, skin in the game to to say like, oh yeah, you've got better weed than this company has. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I don't know if uh, there's any validity to that thought. Yeah, I think there's, you know, only a couple USDA certified 
testing labs in the Illinois. You know, LK Pure was the one in Sparta, yep. which everybody uses around here. Yeah. And they are really good in terms of the depth of their analysis and their completeness. But, you know, they, they, it's, they've come a turnaround time, you know, so it's not analysis it's a, in it's real a time. It's a business. That's you know, what's the weird thing big for me. Big business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I see you pay on a, and so these, it is part of the cost of doing business is you have to pay for analysis. Yeah. Yeah. How, can I ask you this question? Not necessarily expecting you to know, to know the answer, but like how is alcohol or tobacco regulated? Like, I don't think the ATF like tests alcohol, but like, like how, how is that stuff regulated? You know, um, I don't know, but you always see the percent alcohol on the label. Yeah. So it, I, yeah, that's a good question. And it's, and it, this is the thing is part of my like desire to really lean into finding more about this plant and, and normalizing it to some extent is so that you just said it perfectly. Like you can look at a bottle or a can of beer you kind of know what to expect. Even if you don't even, like if you don't even understand the numbers, like, oh, this is a 6%. Like, what does that mean? You still know that like, this is a beer right? and this is liquor. And so there's going to be discernible effects between them. And most people know that like, I can have a beer. I can have two beer. Five is too many for me. But like with cannabis, as you know, probably very well, uh, the line is vastly different between people. You know, and I, I hope that someday we get to where it's like, yeah, enjoy this joint. It's not going to make you have a psychotic episode. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if if that will be achievable because I think yeah. people's physiological response to the same thing is so different. And that's a great point because as I say that, you know, as if, you know, beer or anything related to alcohol, there's like a standard measurement of unit. I'm a lightweight, as they say, with beer. I can only drink a few beers. So you're exactly right. I've got a friend that can just drink a whole 12-pack and not have any discernible effects. I would be on the floor. You know, so yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There's still a lot of physiological variability between yeah. people. I think also with regard to the, the psychological effects, you know, because um, some people really enjoy or the reason they're attracted to it is because of that it sharpens it psychoactively you know um and then some people they don't do it because they can't they're already too wired and yeah, they, yeah. and they feel out of control yeah, and it yeah. could be exactly the same thing with neither have had prior exposure to that and then they have remarkably different effects so that i don't know that's Another common example out of our society, just for folks, if they're trying to wrap their heads around this, you know, um, attention deficit disorder medication, like Adderall, you know, you give it to some people and they are just like bouncing off the walls. You give it to other people and they're just, you know, they're yeah. normal. They can, they can yeah. pay attention now. So that speaks to the different. Yeah, psychological and physiological effects a substance can have. Yeah, and I mean, and I think as physiologists and neuroscientists, we really have a very, you know, early understanding of all those things that contribute to those things. Yeah. But, you know, the emergence of our understanding of the endocannabinoid system, which really wasn't discovered until the 90s, mm -hmm. is really helping us kind of round out our understanding of how these things are working. So, yeah. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. We spoke about it before. The, 
the discovery of the endocannabinoid system and the implications. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, uh, I think a good uh, analogy is what we call the endo-opioid system. So historically, uh, you know, humans have always found plant alkaloids that have profound effects on them. You know, opium, say for instance, opium poppies. Uh, and for centuries and centuries, these things were had profound effects. They made dilated, you know, all these pure things uh, without really having any idea how they worked, right? And then it, it was discovered in the 1960s, the so-called endo-opioid system. And so we know things like endorphin and calfin, these kind of things. And they are systems that exist physiologically to help us deal with stress and trauma. Um, and so the plant alkaloids, they hijack this system, right? And exactly the same thing is happening in the endocannabinoid system. So these natural occurring plant alkaloids that have profound effects, and it, and it wasn't really understood how. And so it was in the 90s, um, and I think there were Israeli investigators that discovered the um, endocannabinoid, the CB1 and CB2 receptors. And then they mapped out, they have the the, the, the biosynthesis, and then they have the, the endogenous ligands, uh, anandamide and, and 2-AG, um, and then the two receptors, and then the enzymes that degrade them, FAH and, and, and MAGL. Um, and the, so that it has all of the, it has a complete system. And then how different things like, you know, synthetic uh, cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids, or endogenous cannabinoids, work via these receptors than other receptors. So this whole understanding of this, the, the molecular features of the endocannabinoid system, really we're 20 years in, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing in how much we're learning. And then just recently, it's in the last couple of years, how these system participates in disease etiology is before, as a before completely overlooked, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, it's really an exciting, really an exciting time in this field. I mean, when you think about it, that, that it was just in the 90s that we figured out there's a whole other system in our body. It's like this has the potential to flip yeah. our understanding of medicine upside down, I think. Yep, absolutely. And I think um, if, we, if we approach it from that viewpoint, it's like this, we're learning about the physiology and this is a system and it acts this way. And that this is, gives us an opportunity to, uh, to intervene because the system is, is apparently acting. If we approach it from that point it takes kind of demystifies it sort of takes the the social construct oh yeah they're smoking weed right that which is you know i just i get the impression that you've smoked like that you that cannabis has been in your life for a while am i wrong well um i would confess to having been a grateful dead fan since 1972 so we've seen it <laughs> yeah yeah so you, you're so aware I, you know yeah. what it smells like yeah <laughs> um can i ask you what is your have have you had like an evolution? What's your viewpoint been on cannabis? Like, have you been like, have you totally bought into everything that people have said in the past? Have you been skeptical? Have you changed your like? What I was just curious. Yeah, well, it's been pretty amazing um, to just see that now there's an industry where it used to be totally black market, you know, and you basically would just get what you got. Yeah. And, um, and I think the, the quality and the, you know, THC content stuff we we're smoking in the seventies was a fraction of, of what we have now. And then, and so, and it, it always was associated with a very strong smell, you know, cause people are like hot boxing and, and, and so it had all this, and, you know, just all this 
connotation and the, the, the bad impression of it. And I think that part has really changed a lot. It's very much more widely accepted. I mean, you think about Luna Lounge and Sesser. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, yeah. and then you see the people queuing up to go on to consume. It's like the whole cross-section. The first customer at Consume Marion was Mayor uh, Mike Henry of Carver. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, so I think, uh, and I believe, unfortunately, the, the normalization is driven by the economy. You know, the economic advantage of having it more normalized is really, I think, what's carrying it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't, I don't know if you want to go down this road, we can, but I'll stop myself. But uh, I, that's kind of a thought I've always had is that, like, I feel like this is all just happening because of the money, like, if you went back to those Grateful Dead concerts and you asked people about their opinions on cannabis, they'd be like, legalize it, dude. They wouldn't say, legalize it. And also, I want there to be a store in my town that carries edibles, <laughs> vaporizers. You know, like they don't, that that would not have been part of the conversation. They just wanted to not like hide. Absolutely. And, yeah. You know, so it's interesting how we've, I, in my opinion, we've lost like the spirit of the legalization movement. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I first sort of was exposed to edibles was I had you know, cancer patients and they were kind of getting it on the black market. And, um, and, and the beneficial effect it had on them. It's like, how, why is this not more widely accepted? Because yeah. this has nothing to do with them getting high. This is like making them be able to live a, a normal to live. life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that, so the medical acceptance, I think, really helped move the industry as well, too. But yeah, so that's back to my question right there. You kind of hit on what I was looking for. Like, that was probably a pretty crazy experience for you to like to take all those things. Okay, this person has cancer. They're taking cannabis. But look at the effect. Like, they are obviously better. It's just like you said with the chickens. You just notice. You, yeah. they're, they're just better. Um, you can you can feel it. Um when that happened, did your mind go like, what else can this do? And like, were you like full in or like, were you still a little skeptical about the medical claims? Like, I just, I'm curious because I wasn't alive during these times when it was like, when it was kind of like hush, hush, cannabis can be used medically. So I would say I still am skeptical yeah, because I am as a scientist skeptical by nature, right? Yep. Um, and I think some of the claims are completely on without any basis. But if you really look at the rigorous literature, it's it's really coming along. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we have to be like we accept or not accept anything. We have to be our own best judge of, you know, judge the stuff. You know, we do this. We teach our students how to critically read the literature. And just because they say that in the literature, look at the data and say, does the data say what the authors are saying it says? Yeah. Um, because it's in the light in which you present it and your interpretation that influences how you think about it. But we have to go beyond what they're saying about it and look at the data and make our own decision. And I think that's what we need to do in, the, in this business as well, too. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of good. And I think the overall benefit far as out, outweighs some of the things. But, you know, we also know there's like cannabis use disorder. Yep. I mean, there's there's real cases of, of, you know, it's not good. And I think people who might be psychotic, it could be the worst thing that they could be doing. Yeah. But you see, I think this is why you brought it up. 
we will, we learn these things through legalizing it. Like, yeah. you know, it's funny. I had a conversation with a group called smart approaches to marijuana. They believe that marijuana should not cannabis should not be legal. Um, and the person that they had represent their organization, uh, said that he struggled with cannabis use disorder. And so we talked about it cause it's something that we hadn't talked about on the show before. It's a real thing, like you say. Um, but it's interesting to think about that. Like, that person may not have had that diagnosis if the thing, if things would have gone the way they wanted to go, like they wouldn't have maybe known that about themselves. Like, Oh, this is like an actual problem that I should probably look into redefining my relationship with cannabis mm -hmm. on. Um, I, I talk about that all the time when, when I talk about the decriminalization of drugs in general, it's like, you know, if you want to make an argument against any drug, for a moral reason or just because it makes you feel better or whatever the case may be. Legalizing drugs will give you all the ammo you need. You know, like I'm just saying, like I know that they, that I've talked to, I like to talk to people that I disagree with. Uh, and so they would disagree with that statement. They'd think that that's like a human experiment and such, but I, I think data is data. You could point to more things, you know? So that's a kind of a tangent. Yeah, no, but I think it's like since the uh, the Farm Bill of 2018, you know, and then it started in early 2019, it has just been revolution. I mean, incredible to see something that, you know, pushed the needle so far. Mm -hmm. Just in terms of when we started to talk about the Cannabis Center here, the, the, the community-wide enthusiasm and support and all of the people we brought together, I mean, it, it, I've never seen a phenomenon like this. And we've all just been like waiting. Yeah. It's just really cool. What do you think is, what do you think the future of your research looks like? Um, we've talked about some of the findings. Um, like, is it just about replicating and getting that consistency and more data to support what you're finding? Like what, what is. Yeah. So what we want to do um, is parallel to the studies or, or learning from the example of what we do with the flaxseed. So we would take these cancer prone hens and we would take a significantly large pool of them, like 600 of them and put them on the flax diet or the control diet for a year or two years. Cause it takes a long time to have those kind of cancer preventative effects. Yeah. And we'd really like to, and we just had incredible results. We've published over 30 papers in this field, right? So what we would like to do is to be able to take that same approach and really ask the question, if you take the uh, cannabinoids, does this actually prevent or decrease the ovarian cancer? And I think that's the opportunity we have. As it, the, the difficulty in figuring out how to do the daily dosing, that's just a technical issue, I'm, I'm sure we could solve. And we have uh, benefactors who are very interested in, in funding this research. So I think that that's the thing we, we would want to do next. Um, but it's a long-term commitment. Um, but I, I think that would answer the question. If we take, and I, and I think now originally we we're going to use CBD isolate, but I think um, I have now warmed to the idea of doing it with uh, full spectrum hemp uh, oil. Because I think, you know, the entourage of it can also, then it's in oil, which is a lot easier way to administer than to dissolve the isolate in oil and, and give it to them. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of been a pushback from the isolate direction and people are going more with the, the full spectrum oil. So, and I think our benefactors who offered us kilos of CBD isolate to do the study 
that was uh, Ron and Blaine Osmond from Aerosource. They were very generous and very interested in supporting it. We're just trying to figure out how the dosing mechanism would best work for this large cohort of hens. And then, you know, identifying the funding to be able to support the bird work. But I think that would really be a game shifter to show that. Yeah. And I know we've already, we've talked about, I, I feel like the next step would be to treat cannabis and like you say, Delta 9 THC and all the cannabinoids that come with that as equivalent, to, you know, we should remove the barriers of uh, entry to, to researching these things. Um, I think we agree that that'll be like maybe the next step. Uh, I say that because I realize my next question, you might be like, slow down, buddy. Uh, but do you think there's a possibility of uh, any other plant medicine becoming, uh, you know, normalized or yeah, regularly absolutely. studied? I think um, the use of psilocybin mushrooms for, you know, uh, psychoactive disorders is just right on the horizon. There's a huge interest in this, as you know. Like uh, Denver, I think, and Portland have decriminalized psilocybin. And in fact, I believe the legalization, uh, you Google this one, folks, but I believe the legalization of psilocybin is going to be on the ballot in Colorado this fall. Yeah. So so I would say that would be, the, and you know, I think the, the a lot of, you know, reading all the, the, the cannabis uh, industry, this is always something that's right on the edge. And and you, certainly that's a real interest we have here with the Hemp Hops and Trooms Festival. Yeah. Though yeah. our, uh, it's like hemp, we're interested in hemp-derived things. And um, the the shrooms is really based on culinary right. and collecting shrooms. Right. The, but I think it has that kind of connotation that it makes it a kind of a catchy thing for mm -hmm. the, yeah. But I think, you know, the kind of things we're going to have is culinary based and, you know, how do you find, can I eat this mushroom? You know, that kind of stuff like that. And I think the whole of the, the mushroom thing is like, boy, that, I think there's a lot of psycho or, or a lot of medicine involved there. Like when I was working in andrology, we were very interested in the mushroom cordycepsis, which is, is uh, uh, helps with male fertility. I mean, so there's a lot, I think mushrooms are a whole nother nat source of natural products, just, just beyond the, the you know, psilocybin, the other aspects. Yeah. You know, like Amanita, Muscaria, you know, it's like, that's some bad stuff if you don't if you take too much, you know. So, yeah. so there's a, I think there's so much not known about that, but it's a kind of a parallel sort of thing. It has a sort of mystique that has limited it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if you agree on this, but you, you put it brilliantly earlier. Uh, the thing that's so fascinating about all of this is the fact that these are naturally occurring compounds that can act on our receptors if we ingest the substance in, in some form or another. It's just fascinating to me. It is. And like that, that, that the, I think the, to cap it off, it's not like the cannabis plant is growing THC so that Buck and Cole can have a good time. I don't know the organic function of why the plant is growing THC, honestly, other than uh, if I were to make an hypothesis, it'd be that it's very sticky and resinous and a female plant probably wants to attract pollen and make sure it sticks. Maybe that's, maybe that's it. I don't know. Um, you might be uh, protective also, you know, from heat stress and just like a stress response to make it true. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard that. So, but yeah, like that just at a core level, the reason I find, um, kind of this conversation that we're having so fascinating is, is just that these, 
naturally occurring things that have come from earth require very little human intervention. Um, and by that, I mean like complicated processes to make them active or available. You know, it, was, it was like when um, in fermentation, like they discovered that their fruit got boozy, right? And then they, but they were starving. So they drank it or ate it anyway. And then, Oh, Hey, that, you know, and, and I think, <laughs> uh, I, I think that the origin of, Religion comes from primitive man ingesting psychoactive mushrooms, and yeah. then they realize there's something greater than themselves. Mm -hmm. And so then, I mean, then they started, it kind of gave them this consciousness. It opened up their consciousness awareness. Yeah. And I still think that's a viable explanation. I do too. I believe what you're referencing is the stoned ape theory by Terrence McKenna. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And uh, I think it's, there's some validity to it just from my personal experience. You know, like he, any of these substances we've talked about, the fact that almost at a press of the button, you can change the way you perceive things. And oftentimes for me, it's for the better. And when it's, when it's not, it's still constructive. It's like, ah, oh, you know, I shouldn't have said that to them that way. Like <laughs> you could maybe argue that that's like a negative thought, but it's a positive yeah. thought. Cause it's like, Oh, cool. Yeah. Be better in the future. Constructive. Yeah. Yes. Constructive. Yeah. yeah. So I think that like you say, we get in these patterns as we are primates, we get in these patterns. And I think these substances allow us to break from those patterns and be like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah. You know? And I just, that's so fascinating yeah, like, to me. And I think about, you know, like, how did they think to start to smoke that stuff? Yeah. I mean, you wonder, or I think in terms of primitive man learning about food, how in the world did they learn that artichokes were food? I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I would have given up on that. Yeah. So, um, but I, I think about, you know, when you, you said you, that you fly over and you see that's a grow out. So this would happen, you know, in the, the uh, forest preserves in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And then they always would show, they'd get all that, you know, cannabis that they harvest and they put it in a big pile and they'd all set it on fire. And then it showed all the sheriffs in a big circle around it standing there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mobile police officials destroyed marijuana and pills at the Berkeley Fire Department training area today. About 300 pounds of pot, most of it in brick form, was in the pile. The former evidence in drug cases was soaked in gasoline and then set afire. The file took over an hour to burn. Mobile police officials and state toxicologist Dr. Nelson Grubb supervised the destruction. This evidence is about six months old. All the cases. There's actually a really <laughs> funny. Uh, it's it's not a it's not a real video. I think it actually is off of Reno 911, if I'm not mistaken. But oftentimes it's shared on Facebook. You know how Facebook is. People yeah. share it. And they're like, "This is real." Uh, there's a video of a guy, a firefighter, putting out a fire that is supposedly a cannabis farm. And they like have the news cameras on him, and he's like, oh, "Yeah, this is," <laughs> you know, playing off your joke. Yeah. So, carelessness and cannabis triggered a house fire in San Diego. When firefighters put out the flames, they discovered an elaborate pot growing operation there in the garage. Firefighters say some of those marijuana plants did burn. They also say one person was treated for smoke inhalation. I inhaled so much smoke. Yeah. 
That's uh, we're living in interesting times. Uh, you know, times of, times of great transition, I think. Yeah, I feel very very fortunate, and in a lot of ways, uh, for the time that we're growing up in, because I saw the tail end of prohibition. Um, and I've never shared this story on the podcast, but here we go. The town I grew up in voted on pro the to repeal the prohibition of alcohol. So I actually saw the repeal of prohibition. Now it's not like we didn't just go to the next town over to get alcohol. That's what my parents did, but I never understood. That's why we did what we did. Yeah. Like, oh, why do we go there to? Well, they they can't sell it here because of the way that the town is. They believe in prohibition. It's a dry town, and so yeah, they they repealed that. And I, it was weird to that was the as a child I saw that there was a line, and if we drove past it, then you could acquire the thing that you wanted, but if you drove the other way, you couldn't, and it it that I was reminded of that when I turned 21 on my first trip to Colorado, this was before cannabis was uh, legal for adult use in, in Illinois. And I just remember getting out of Nebraska, crossing over the state line into colorful Colorado and thinking like, you know, I'm, I, I just drove past that line and all of a sudden everything's okay. It's just so weird. It is. It's just completely arbitrary because the state lines are just, Artificial things, you know. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so we um, noted, and everybody does this, the 420 mile marker on I-70, it's been gone for years. Yep, yep, (laughs) yeah. Go for, you know, 418, 419, 421. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think that, I don't know if this is so true, I don't know if this is true, but I thought I saw on the internet that they actually replaced it so that it's like 420.1. So that in order to like dissuade people f- from it just being mile 420. Yeah. I've heard that, but I haven't seen that. Yeah, I haven't but either. It's pretty funny. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, anything else with regard to uh, SIU before we close out? I just figured we could close out by talking a little bit of Colorado. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but I mean, it's, I think it's, so I lived in Chicago for 20 years, uh, but I say to me, Carbondale and Denver are, are much more alike than either or like Chicago, just in terms of um, kind of the outdoor sense and the yep. you know, free spirit and things like that. Though, I mean, I, I love Chicago. I mean, it was a great experience. Even the, there. is this the correct term, the topography or the ge- the yeah. geography, uh, just the hills. It's, it's mountainous. Oh, yeah. It's different from the rest Absolutely. of the world. Absolutely. You know, the Shawnee Forest and all the lakes and... And it's just a beautiful, beautiful place to live in Carbondale. And SIU is just such a, a a welcoming campus. You know, I mean, it's it's been a great, great part of my career being here. And to be given the opportunity to develop the, the Cannabis Science Center, it's just been extraordinary to find how many like-minded people. You know, we have 30 faculty that are in the center, um, all with some different aspect that are involved in this. Uh, I mean, I think this is great. Yeah, yeah. And by the way... Um Carla Gage, I know you mentioned her. I'd love to speak to some of your colleagues about what they're doing here uh, in the future. So if you're able to facilitate that connection, yeah. I'd, I'd appreciate it. And, and our, uh, our newest—he's actually our first ever cannabis faculty. His name is Jose Lemme. Yeah, and love he's to talk to him. absolutely he is an amazing guy. He's he's very you know right away he had TikTok videos of them growing hemp in the field. It's like okay, this guy's 
socially, you know, social media aware. And I yeah. think, and, and our uh, publicist, Catherine uh, Etretera, has done the website development. She's worked McCann and Mushroom Festival. And she's really done all the work behind the Hemp uh, Hops and Shroom Festival. And she and Jose, I mean, amazing. So if um, so, she's who writes the newsletter too. Awesome. Yeah. And hey, we didn't mention that. So folks, if you want to sign up for the, is it the Canadogs newsletter? Canadogs, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. You know, because we're Salukis, right? Yep. So we're all dogs out here. So. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll throw a link in the description, but do you know, like, do you just go to the cannabiscenter.siu.edu to sign up or is there an easier way? Yeah, they could do There's a, a, a fill in block there. Perfect. And they, can, and they can actually download a copy from the from the website as well. Yeah, it's a great newsletter. So, yeah, I mean, Catherine's sent just a marvelous thing. So we're featuring, you know, SIU alumni or people that are now in the cannabis industry. That's kind of been the current theme. So, mm-hmm. yeah, love it. Well, uh, once again, uh, tell us when the symposium and Hemp Hop Shrooms Festival is. Okay, so the Hemp Cannabis Symposia is going to be uh, September 17th, and it's going to be here at the, uh, uh, at the Student Center in Carbondale. And it's going to be, I think, well, especially industry-oriented focus, really going to be great with a real emphasis on the, the fiber crop industry that we're working to develop. And then the following weekend, September 24th, is the first annual Hemp Hops and Shroom Festival. Uh, and it's uh, at the same time as the Off the Rails concert series that evening. So it'll be a full day of, of cannabis uh, microbrew-oriented and uh, mushroom culinary focus i think on this so come on out and, and have some fun it'll be live music food trucks it'll be a great great time absolutely yeah that sounds like a good time summer's back in full swing and uh it's only right that we have great events like that so right. i'll you. try to try to make it there and folks maybe we'll see you there so um thank you all for tuning into this episode buck i uh just wanted to say thank you uh for taking the time to sit down with me it really means a lot i don't know if you knew this but i've been trying to get a hold of you since i started this podcast oh, yeah. <laughs> which is it's been like uh two years and i finally I, so I signed up for the Canadogs newsletter and then I was just like, I, I had found your email. I was like, I'm just going to send them an email and you replied. So, um, so thank you for, for taking the time to sit down with me and, uh, I'd, I'd love to do it again sometime. Maybe I'm sure we'll have more to talk about yeah, in the future. No, and I really appreciate it. And I thought, I thought you were an excellent podcast host. So <laughs> thank you. Thank All you. Right. All right. My pleasure. All right. Well, with that folks, we'll see you on the next episode. All right.